Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Long after we've returned home from our holidays, perhaps even after our memories of our trips begin to fade, our homes may still be decorated by a selection of souvenirs we gathered from our travels around the world. Many are tied to memories of a small artisanal village in the mountains, or a local friend's relative who specializes in making cultural curios. These souvenirs can be some of the most special experiences of travel, meeting local people and bringing home a small piece of their culture. Today, we're going to speak to a man helping preserve such traditions and then make them available to visitors in Cambodia. I'm Trevor Ranges in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and with me once again is Scott Coates, I believe in Bangkok, Thailand. Hey, Scott. Hey, Trevor. Yeah, I am in a regular recording spot in my home office here in Bangkok. And an interesting topic. We've certainly touched on things we've purchased over the years on this show, but we've never really specifically focused on sort of artisan handicrafts and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, this is a bit of a, a big black hole for me to a certain degree, although I have been to numerous, you know, artisan centers in various countries over the years. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I've always... You know, souvenirs are really cool. Like I mentioned in the intro, like a little piece of the culture that you can bring back. And, you know, I always like kind of traveling off the beaten track. And every once in a while, you find yourself in a village that specializes in, in you know, stone carving. Uh, there's a village in Cambodia called Persat where they do stone carving. Um, when I was in Sumatra, I came across this village where they had these really cool wood carved staffs that the local shamans used. And I believe that's on one of our travel tales episodes when I, when I haggled with this woman, it's one of the best haggling experiences too. So like, I think, you know, when you go to, to places where you can find handicrafts and you can meet people that are making them and, and you bring back that memory, I think that's really kind of the coolest aspect of, of souvenirs. Yeah. And I find as I get older, I buy less and less and I'm, that might just be because I have lots of stuff in my house. I think also the more you travel, the less things that catch your eye. And I guess the things that do catch my eye are expensive things that maybe I should be spending more money on because I have a hunch that maybe the things I'm buying aren't, well, I know a lot of the things I buy aren't good quality and I'm fine with that. So Trevor, thinking about some of your travels and, and maybe nicer souvenirs, what are some of the things that still resonate and stand out for you? Well, you know, it's funny because like sometimes I, I'm such an itinerant person that like a lot of my souvenirs tend to like just live in storage for, for years. Um, but, you know, like right, I'm looking across the room at this. Uh, it's a basket with straps so that it's a backpack basket mm -hmm. from the Benong Hill Tribe people up in like northeastern Cambodia. Oh, and wow. that, it's, so, it's so cool. I love it. You know, but I used to I, I recently found some like old textiles from Laos. And I remember like, I'd always been so fascinated by the Lao textile traditions. 
And I remember just meeting these wonderful women who made these handicrafts. And, and so I used to buy them and I had no idea what I'm going to do with this thing, you know, and, and, and they're beautiful. So I, I ended up like eventually having this box full of all these souvenirs, uh, in, in Hawaii. And every year I go home for Christmas, I, I give them away as, as Christmas gifts. Um, but you know, like, yeah, like some of them, like that shaman staff, I still keep, or, or like that, that cool little hill tribe basket over there. Um, I, I don't know if I could even remember all my handicrafts, but like I, they, they all have an, a connection to like a person in a place in a specific memory. Like almost none of my souvenirs are just random. Like, Oh, that looked nice in a market kind of thing. Some of mine are random. Um, you know, and I think I, I know some of them are definitely straight from the factory. Like for whatever reason, when we were in Bali last time, we bought this little wooden bulldog. It's probably plastic and it's painted in bright wild colors. But hey, we liked it. And I'm sure tens of thousands of people have it, it was inexpensive. Another time, these were probably replicas, but they were uh, two headhunter earrings from Kuching Borneo. But they're put in a, in a nice boxed uh, frame. And again, probably factory, but but they're nice. We still have them in our room. Uh, I bought a cool Tanka painting uh, from Tibetans in Nepal. It's on my wall. I mean, they are all making them when you're there and they say they're handmade. I, I've got my doubts, but, you know, I, I still like it a lot. I've got a few paintings. I bought a watercolor from Vietnam like 28 years ago. And again, it probably is watercolor, but I have some from Northern Thailand. And I know I'm friends with the painter who painted those. Some of the definitely made by people, because I saw them make some of these things, was on treks in uh, Nepal. I bought some wooden kind of jugs. They're not super beautiful, but they're made on a, on a hand-powered lathe by people in, in a mountainous area. I also bought this very, very thick handmade woolen coat that I had on display on the wall. And I should really get that up again from a small village because it's really beautiful. Uh, some brass ornaments, some brass Buddhas from Patan, uh, Kathmandu as well. So probably the nice real artisanal stuff I tend to have is mostly from Nepal. Yeah. You know, that reminded me while you're talking, I have a sand painting from Myanmar. Okay. When I was up in Bagan, they do this thing where they put like, they, they glue, they put glue, they paint with glue, I think. And then they spray, they sprinkle different colored sands on it. So they make paintings out of sand. Hmm. And that's big, and it's been in this tube for 20 years. I got to get that thing framed and hung up now that I sort of have a home. But, you know, sometimes, like, I bought that. I remember because, you know, at the time, this was, like, 2002 or three, maybe. Like, people weren't going to Myanmar. Um, the guy who I bought these sand paintings from was very poor. He, he wasn't trying to shake me down. There was so, like, no tourists back then. And, and sometimes, like purchasing this handicraft from a, a, a person who makes it is an important economic transaction. You know, like these people don't make a lot of money. And if they sell their wares to somebody else who sells them to somebody else who sells them to a market, they get like a, a really small share. Um, so that's why I often like to buy them um, from the markets. Uh, but again, like today we're having a guest on who's going to tell us like maybe a better model for that. Uh, yeah, it, it just put into mind, hopefully we're going to learn how to spot uh, real quality things because I remember years ago I bought this elephant and ashtray here in Thailand 
that's painted to look like wood. And I dropped one once and it just splits and it's like white plastic inside. <laughs> and I didn't really care because it didn't pay much. And I, I'm not so sure I thought it was wood. But right away I was like, oh, yeah, these are just coming from some factory. So, um, yeah, before we get into it, let us thank Lisa. She is one of our patrons. And what is a patron, you ask? They are lovely people that like the show so much and want to keep going that they sponsor the show from as little as a few dollars a month or up. And in between every one of these shows, they get a special patron episode. That's sometimes Trevor and I uh, riffing on something topical. It's sometimes videos we've shot in the region, etc. So become a patron, get those special things between the regular episodes and uh, help keep this going. So uh, Trevor, why don't we uh, get to our guest? With 20 years of senior management experience in international and cross-cultural marketing, tourism, and the development and retail sale of cultural products, Pierre-André Romano, better known to his friends as PA, is passionate about working in cross-cultural environments. A resident of Cambodia since 2014, PA has served as general manager of Exo Travel, a destination management company for inbound tourists, and CEO of Artisans Encore, the biggest producer and retailer of cultural goods in Cambodia. Currently, he's president of the Artisans Association of Cambodia and the Siem Reap French Chamber of Commerce. I hope that's all correct, because he's sitting right here beside me. Uh, welcome to the show, PA. Thanks. How'd I do there with my intro? Uh, it's, it's correct, except that I, I just left the Artisans Association of Cambodia, but that's... Uh for the rest is okay. I've been, I've been the president of this association, but I'm not anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'll share what you're up to now. Sure. Soon. Yeah. So, PA, it's great to hear your voice. You and I worked for the same company briefly, and I always enjoyed your company. For those yep. listening that obviously don't know you, before we get into Cambodia and uh, artisan items, where are you originally from, and what did you do there in your previous life? I'm from France. I was born there and I, I, I grown up there. I studied there. Uh, I didn't study actually nothing related to tourism or to art and crafts. Uh, I've studied politics mainly and some finance. And then I quickly moved into the tourism industry because I like traveling ma mainly. And uh, I always had on the side two uh, other activities. One is teaching. I've always teached my whole life. Since I was 21, I started teaching at university until recently okay until covid i would say and uh, also uh, uh art collector and art exhibition organizing art exhibition for the past 30 years oh wow okay so that's a very good succinct summary but uh what first brought you to asia then how did your asia story begin well i moved to asia in 1992 uh, to singapore uh, precisely to work for a french company there for a two years mission and at that time, I just finished university and I was studying with one of my friends who was a French Cambodian. So uh, while I was staying in, in, in Singapore, I came to visit my friend in, in Cambodia and I fell in love with this country and I saw that one day maybe I'll move there. So I went back to France in 1994 and then came back and forth to Cambodia for 20 years until I finally decided to move in on 2014. So PA, knowing that you worked in tourism for quite a while, what led you to then kind of leave the day-to-day -day tourism operations and start working in artisan handicrafts? I would say what, what made me wait so long to move into the, the <laughs> one that I'm passionate for. Okay. <laughs> I, I've, I've been always passionate about art and crafts. As I mentioned before, I've been in the tourism industry mainly because I like to travel and meet culture and share about different culture. 
I've been collecting artifacts from all over the world and, and, and teaching cross-cultural management, cross-cultural uh, communication for years. I did lectures and conference about that. And I finally find a way to move to what I'm passionate about, which is culture, when I moved to Artisan Encore. So uh, I would say tourism was just a way for me. It was very interesting, but it was just a way for me to, to meet and to travel and to share and to know more about all these cultures. Okay. I don't know if you want to give us the, the journey from there or whether you want to just jump ahead to today, but uh, what is it that, that motivates you now? What is it that you're, you're doing in that field that uh, fulfills that dream? I've been working for the past five years in the cultural fields in Cambodia and very closely also with the government and the Ministry of Culture. And I find out that the, the, the risk today, Cambodia has a very rich culture for thousands of years. We know that they influence the whole area. All the countries around are influenced by the Khmer culture. It used to be the biggest empire a thousand years ago. But uh, if we stick to uh, protecting the patrimonial culture, I believe that the young generation will run away and start to look at, and that's the case, start to look at other cultures. So by pro overprotecting the culture, they are destroying the culture now. So my, my vision is that if we try to uh, preserve this know-how, but by bringing some uh, contemporary influence, modern influence to traditional know-how, this is the perfect mix to make sure that we can preserve Cambodian culture, Cambodian symbols and, and traditions more than just by protecting the purely patrimonial uh, culture. And I'm, I'm doing some advocacy with the, the, the government now to make them more, a little bit more open mind about, about uh, culture that it's not only the old stone, but it's also what can we do today with Cambodian stone and uh, traditional know-how and contemporary vision. Okay, neat. So is this organization, I see in our notes, Satcha, S-A-T-C-H-A? Satcha. Satcha, okay. So how many people are part of this organization and, and what kind of products are they producing? Now we have about 75 people there. 45 of them are, are craft people with 12 different uh, know-how. We have the, the stone, culture, stone carving, wood carving, uh, leather, water hyacinth, rattan, silk weaving, sewing, cotton weaving, jewelry, ceramic, lacquer, and painting. Oh, wow. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm trying to get back to when you were saying, as a traveler, you'd like to you know, collect artifacts from your travels and that's something that I've always liked and I've always enjoyed purchasing my souvenirs from the artisans who make them in these little villages because it gives you a real connection to the place and yeah. the people that you visited. Some of these things though, you know, like you mentioned water hyacinth, they, they, they make handbags out of the dried right. plant matter right. and, and actually that style of handbag has become quite famous in the West in recent years and, and that was kind of cool. And, and you talk about trying to make it relevant. How can you make like the leather carving or the stonework, you know, some of this stuff may be tricky to bring into a modern era. It, it yeah. is, it is. Yeah, that's, a, that, 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 that's true. Some, some are more tricky to modernize and get contemporary design. You talk about the leather, for example, now we're working on the lightning. So we do, uh, we build, we start to do the traditional leather carving and we, don't, we didn't sell much actually, I have to say, because it's, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, workshops selling that today. So we start to move to lightning and we do a contemporary design with carv uh, leather carved uh, cover 
and this is uh, starting to be one of our best seller now in the shop. Regarding the the, the um, sculpture, wood and stone, uh, it's it's picking up. But the, the funny thing is that our our craft people are incubated, so they are independent. So when they join our company, they have a three years contract with them, where we commit to buy all their product to make sure they have enough for living. And there's a three years training program for soft skill to make sure that they become more and more independent and they can, they can have their own company after three years. So when they started with us, we tell them, okay, just produce whatever you want. We want to see what you can do and open your mind and produce whatever you want. They started to produce Buddha, Apsara, Apsara, Buddha, Buddha, Apsara, Apsara, Buddha, Apsara, Buddha. And after months, we, we talk to them, we bring them to the National Museum, we bring them to the temple because we find out that even so they live in the, in, in the cities, they've never been to the temple and they've never been to the National Museum. And they start to open their mind and to bring them books about uh, other culture. I bring them books about Japanese art. I bring them books about European art. And now they start to create something very different. So it's still quite classic, but they start to have a different vision. They, they, they recently carved centaur which is totally out of the Cambodian culture. Greek. But yeah, they did two centaur and one of our customers came and he bought the two centaur. So yeah. now we're producing more. They start to, to use some of the symbol, like the unalom. I don't know if you know what is the unalom, this that we can see on the, on the traditional tattoo in mm. Cambodia, like this, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of spiral, which is supposed to be the eyebrow of Buddha, symbolizing the, the different uh, uh, difficulty that you can find in life until you can reach the nirvana. So we have wood carving with this symbol, we have stone carving with this symbol, which is very modern actually. The design is very modern, but this is a very traditional uh, Cambodian uh, symbol. So it's slowly moving to contemporary carving inspired by traditional symbols. Now, PA, we all kind of know the, the tragic history of, of Cambodia, and I believe uh, the Khmer Rouge were, were kicked out of power in about 79. A lot of artisans and educated people were targeted by them. How were these traditions preserved and then kind of revived post-war era? Well, the previous company I was working for that uh, Trevor mentioned, which is the Artisan Encore, was actually a school uh, created in, in uh, post-Khmer Rouge era, just in 1991 or 1992. Okay to revive this, this and to preserve and to revive this, this traditional uh, handicraft skill that were destroyed by the, the, by the war. And they bring some master from other countries or the, the, the few that survived to Khmer Rouge okay. to open a big school and they, they, they train about 1,000 people in the past 20 years. Hmm. And that's how all this tradition start again. Ah, interesting. You know, when you were talking about uh, some of the stone carving and stuff, and, and we were talking about like trends and styles and whatnot. I just thought like, what percentage of the goods that you produce are for tourist souvenir kind of products versus like hotels and locals and people who live here probably order a lot of the stoneworks or some of these more traditional things. I guess it doesn't matter to the artisans who they're selling it to, but but the styles would kind of demand. It, how this, they, the yeah. style is different for yeah. sure. The style is different. You mentioned the waterhouse in handbag, for example. This is a bestseller with the Khmer uh, on the Khmer market. The, the Khmer oh, ladies yeah. love it. Yeah, we sell this every day to Khmer. Not much to the the tourists. Maybe because these designs are a bit more uh, local, with flowers, colorful flowers, and this kind of thing. It's not not sober enough to 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 please the, the international tourists. Mm. But today, I would say that 
for the past two months, our sales are 80% local and 20% international. But the first quarter of the year was the opposite because we had a lot of tourists in, uh, in Q1. They don't buy more products, but they buy more expensive products. So if we look at sales in terms of, of turnover, for our first six months of activity, I would say it's about 40% local and 60% international. But if you look at the number of products, it's maybe 70% local and 30% international. Putting ourselves in the, the shoes of a traveler looking to buy something meaningful on a trip, why is it important for travelers to kind of be able to figure out is there product local or is it being made from a, a big factory in another country? Yeah, that's, that, that's the main idea behind the, the, the concept of opening our workshop for free visit to anyone. Is because uh, if you go to the market today, the old market or whatever market in, in, in Simrip, most of the products are imported. They are machine made in China, in Vietnam, or, or, or sometime in India or Thailand. But there's no, they are not locally made. So the idea was to show how they make the product and then you buy the product that you've seen in the workshop. So that, that's the first uh, selling point. The second one is also to build a, a more sustainable business model that then most of the workshop today because we are not an NGO. I have to insist on that. We are a social company in the way that we are a private company with a social mission. Okay. But we are not an NGO. And most of the, our competitors are NGO. They are 100% funded by donors. So they don't have any cost. They can sell at whatever price they want. They kill the market in a way. But they are not sustainable because you cannot uh, uh, preserve and develop a, a whole industry based on donations. I mean, I'm going to assume that like there's better quality from a handmade product that you know has generational, uh, you know, like skill applied to it. Because I assume like a lot of these people, they're not total novices at different crafts because yep. their family, their families, and their villages yes. are specialized yes. in these things. Yeah. But once they do go through your program, is there any sort of like certificate or something so that like when tourists are shopping, they know that, hey, these products I'm buying from this person are No, they, they, there's no certificate, but just sh showcasing the, the way they make it. Mm. And then you find the same product that you see in the workshop, ongoing production, it gives enough credit to make sure that you buy products that are not imported. It's, it goes beyond that because for me, beyond the mission of preserving the, the, the handicrafts, there's also something about uh, what I call the slow production. I mean, I, want, I, I would like people to understand that it's better to buy something that is, of course, a little bit more expensive than something machine made in China, but it will not last three months, it will last three years or, or ten years. And what is even more important for me, it's made by someone who has a real skills and a real job. That's what I'm selling now. So, PA, what are, say, the sure signs or the giveaways of something that is not handmade when people are looking at markets? I will be very basic, but first the price. Okay. If it's too cheap, you can make sure that it's not made by uh, local handicraft people, but imported and made by machine somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Quick, quick example is the, the sales scarf. You can find $5 sales scarf at the market. Our weaver and whatever, any weaver, hand weave, woven... Uh, silk in Cambodia or anywhere for the complicated the sophisticated one it they can do 20 to 30 centimeter per day mm. so I can believe I cannot believe that you can make handmade a scarf and sell it at five dollar uh, and user at the, at the market right 
So how, how about this? For people who are coming here to Cambodia and looking for a souvenir, what's maybe one or two of your favorite artisanal crafts? Something here that maybe would be different enough from something you could get anywhere else, unique enough Cambodian that, that would make a great souvenir for people to get here. It really depends on people. For me, it's the stone, because stone is historical. The stone carving is really a historical uh, skill in Cambodia for thousands of years. Stone and ceramic. These are the two, the two material and the two skills that has been uh, highlighted by all the travelers in Cambodia since the, the 12th century when the Chinese come and, the, and then the Spanish and then the Portuguese and then the French. They all talk about the stone carving and they all talk about the ceramics. This is a real Cambodian souvenir. What kind of things are you getting made out of stone? It's mainly uh, uh, what I call decoration because it's sculpture, uh, traditional or modern sculpture. It's also, uh, they also have an amazing know-how with uh, what I call the deep carving bas-relief. And if you look at the temple in Angkor, but also the, the best example is Montesve, the carving is very, very deep and it's quite unique. You don't find this in, in any carving in the world. This is one of the very specific about the skills of the carver in Cambodia is the kendus. Barolief is a very deep carving. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I was coming back from Phnom Penh not long ago, and Chup, Chup is the name of the town, I think, south of uh, Siem Reap here, where they do some stone carving and they sell the stuff on the sides of the road yeah. there. And my friend had just built a new house here, and he's like, oh, I'm going to look for some decorations for my house because they have every single different size. So yeah. they make like a... Like a linga and a yoni, you know, yeah. like it's a little yeah. shiva, like a Hindu uh, thing. And they make little tiny ones for like your paperweight for your desk at sure. home, all the way up to some giant fountain ones for your garden. Yep. And so I think it's kind of neat that uh, they will make really small ones for souvenirs for, for tourists um, that are pretty cool. They're not too heavy, so they don't take up too much space in your bag. I think one thing people are worried about, maybe you could help us clear this up, is, you know, some people are like, oh, we're not allowed to buy buddha images like all the guidebooks always tell you that it's illegal you're not allowed to but there's a difference between like a a real buddha image and a likeness of the buddha yes there's no ban about uh, selling or buying buddha in cambodia or any religious image or any religious artifacts the only thing that is banned is antiques if it's more than 80 years old you cannot sell or you cannot buy in cambodia if it's less than that it's totally free even if it's a real buddha design a real uh, religion image copy of the temple there's no restriction on this no, it's not like Thailand Thailand there's in Cambodia there's no restriction on this if you want to export you need a stamp from the Ministry of Culture because then they have to come and check whether it's uh, antique or not but that's it and the stamp is like 50 cents or one dollar depending on the size of the sculpture so there's there's no no problem about this you can buy whatever you want as long as it's not antique okay well PA, what does the ne- the future look like? Let, let's say the next five to ten years look like for Khmer artisans and their work. I'm quite optimistic because the prime minister recently uh, announced that they will fund uh, vocational training for young Cambodian people, more than 1.5 million total vocational training in Cambodia, including 60,000 specially dedicated to handicrafts. So now the, the Ministry of Culture is handling these parts. 60,000 young people uh, will be included in a, a vocational training program funded by the government. Okay. And they ask us to help to set the master plan of this uh, vocational training program. So we're work- working very closely with them on that. Okay. 
That's very exciting. So I can see that maybe uh, things like the Satcha program, maybe in Kampong Tom or some other provinces. Yes. Yeah. We're already working on a remote workshop and training center. We already have one other construction in Kulen, one in, in uh, Batambang. We are discussing with uh, Kampong Shnang village, also the pottery village in Kampong Shnang, where it's a traditional since thousands of years. Shnang means the, the pot, really, so it's the port of the pot where we will host some family there under our incubation program, but remotely. Uh, we're also looking at Horunta Ek, the village where they, they, they move all the people from Angkor because there's nothing, there's no job there. So we are planning to build a, a stone carving workshop there. We have a lot of areas of development in Cambodia beyond this, the main site itself. Cool, yeah, because that is a good place to go, Kampong Chenang. That's yeah, a, they, right. I always I have upstairs, I have several piggy banks. Mm -hmm. They're famous for making piggy mm -hmm. banks that look like pigs that are made out of clay. Yep. And the only way you can get them open is by smashing them. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> okay. I, always, I bought some for my neighbor's kids in mm. Phnom Penh. They're, they're pretty cool. And they did start to make more modern, like they make elephants and some yep, other, true. and different colors now. But, but I don't think they get too many tourists yet in Cambodia. No, not anymore. But we're working on this. And we're working with the Ministry of Commerce on this one because we are company there, one, one province, one product program. And the pilot project is Kampong Chenang. Neat. So, PA, how can people learn more about this organization and, and see what they do and potentially plan to make it part of their trip? We just opened, so I have to say that we are not so good on communication yet, but we have a website that is just a corporate website that introduces our, our mission and our organization. Okay. We have, of course, all the social media, and uh, we're lucky because in Cambodia, our place is... Um, uh, I would say sel selfie friendly. So <laughs> we have okay. hundreds of people coming every day to take pictures of them and of the place. So there's a lot of videos and pictures on, on TikTok, on Facebook, on in Instagram. That, and some gives a lot of information. So yeah, you can find some on the social network, some on, on our website. But we have to improve this part. I have to say that our communication is still a bit... Uh, emerging just start yeah yeah people can come in here to embargo i have some flyers right sure. here uh, and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll show, come to embargo and we'll show you how to get to shot such a but yeah it's definitely selfie worthy they have some beautiful bamboo structures they have a nice cafe in the back and a little yeah. garden yeah. and a really cool concept store where you can see like the items and and where they might <clears throat> hang out in your home yeah and the whole place is a demonstration of Khmer know-how you mentioned the bamboo workshop this is really what we want to promote because it's uh, a, a local cheap material the bamboo very sustainable it's a, a traditional uh, uh, material for construction but the design of our workshop is very contemporary. So it's really the illustration of what we want to showcase. Traditional know-how, local material, contemporary design. Yeah, and we didn't really plug the workshops, but like when you go there, there's artisans doing stone carving, doing silk weaving, uh, making leather goods. Uh, mm. It was kind of slow though. I went on an off day, but you just had a, a little pop-up market or something there over the weekend. So yeah. it is a, a good tourist experience for those people who do come to Siem Reap here. 
Well, PA, I have always admired how passionate you are about whatever you do. And I remember when we both worked for the same travel company, you were always about the people and making sure you were treating people well. And it sounds like you've continued that into handicrafts and I commend you. So thanks so much for taking time to share what you're up to and and the artisans. I do encourage people to go to the website, even though there's not a ton there, the photos are really beautiful and then uh, consider making it part of your trip. So thank you so much, PA. Thanks, God. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about the amazing talent of these people. Hey, Scott. That was a pretty good one. I was glad to have uh, PA finally on the show. You know, I've, I've been talking to him about it ever since I've known him. So probably like five years now, I've been like, we got to get you on the show. We got to get you on the show. Because even then, when we worked together at XO, like, you know, other than both of our passion for, for politics, including local politics, part of it was like how to do something that's beneficial to our host communities here uh wherever we live in asia and uh it's great that that pa is is passionate enough to to stick to it and help people through this organization uh, make handicrafts that uh you know benefit a lot of people including travelers yeah he's a very very passionate guy and i got to meet him at a handful of meetings and training events we did uh, back in the travel days and yeah he was all about protecting advancing helping his team and i really admire him for what he's doing there you know something that is so obvious when he said it when we were talking about you know how to really know if what you're getting is quality and price right like i think somehow when we go traveling particularly the developing world in asia we all think we got to get these great deals and everything becomes about getting the lowest price in that. And it's kind of flawed in two ways is one, do you really need to save a dollar that much when, when you're bargaining? And two is he used the silk scarf uh, example. Of course, it's not going to be a handmade silk scarf, right? For $5. Like it just can't be. And then you got to ask yourself like the $5 silk scarf is fine or fake silk scarf. If really like that's the quality you want, you're going to use it for a bit and be done with it. But Sometimes, you know, people buy things that they legitimately like and they, they say, oh, this is really nice and, and so forth, but they're trying to get the cheap one. You're like, it, it doesn't really go both ways. So it is obvious that you got to spend for quality, but we often, I think, shy away from that when we're traveling. Yeah, you know, I like that idea. We said slow production. It's interesting that like the longer it takes to make something, the longer it lasts. Mm. And, uh, you know, and then when you think about it, you know, sometimes I ask people that. So that's a good tip, maybe. Like if I pick something up in the stone carving village and I'm like, oh, that's really nice. I'll ask, like, how long did it take to make this? You know, and if a guy says like three weeks, then that gives you some idea of like the cost you might be spending on it. And again, like that, that it still might be like $40 or something. But think about that. That's like three weeks of labor for $40, which is ridiculously cheap, obviously. And maybe it's not all day, every day, but like some things take time to to make especially beautiful things yeah and and really buying art and we'll say art from everything from a handmade bracelet right up to the the sewn sculpture right from local artisans like that's a really great way to provide livelihood but also you know preserve local knowledge and and culture and things like that and in the developing world it's still reasonably economical to do so whereas you know you're from america i'm from canada and the, the economics of that just generally don't work out and we're lucky enough that you know in, in the developing parts of asia particularly that you can still get really beautiful things right sometimes like for 50 dollars or a few hundred dollars and when you put it into perspective and think like this is somebody making something 
that has probably been taught to them and passed down for even, you know, a hundred plus years from family members. It's acquired skill. And it took, like you said, it could have taken weeks to make. It really is still a, an incredible deal. And, you, and you're really having benefit on a, on a lot of different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, like if you buy it directly from the artisan or, or you go through one of these organizations that has a shop where they're selling these artisanal products, the artisans are getting a larger percentage of the, the profits, probably, hopefully. We know with PA they are. And, and if you go to the village, they're getting it directly. You know, so it's just something to think about maybe when you're traveling and uh, looking for souvenirs. Uh, don't stop to wait until the end and then go shop and find some markets and whatnot. Like, uh, do your souvenir shopping throughout each day, every day, you know, when you happen to, to notice some handicrafts in some village as you're driving from A to B. That's often the best place when if you have like a private car. I mean, I guess if you're on a bus, it can be a little bit harder. Um, but even with a bus, if it stops in Kempong Chenang and you see like piggy banks that look kind of cool, like you might not necessarily know that that city specializes in ceramics. But, uh, you know, if they have a cute little thing, pick it up there. You might have a cool story. Yeah, I've always advocated for buying stuff you like when you see it and assume you will not see it again. Because the number of times I've hosted people traveling or been traveling with friends and family and then I got to listen for days after like, oh, I wish I'd bought that. Do you think we're going to see that thing again? So like when you see it, buy it. It could be a pain to carry it around, but uh, do that. So I think for me, the big takeaway from this one is quality still costs. Put the cost into perspective, though, and just think like, do you want the real good quality handmade one? If not, maybe just buy the cheap knockoff at the market. But, um, you know, treat yourself too for those special things. And again, just a reminder, if you've... Uh, listen to this and you're liking the travel talk help Traver and i keep it going because it costs us money become a patron and go to patreon.com or click donate on the website a few dollars a month upwards and one of the things that lisa and other patrons saw was a video of me my dad and my wife exploring taroko gorge in thai one which was shot in april 2023 so get in on those bonus things that happen between every episode so Thanks for getting PA on the show, Trevor. I enjoyed that conversation. And uh, why don't you take us out of this thing? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Lisa and our other patrons. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, with another episode. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey, Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia?